the Z. Smith Reynolds Library on the campus of Wake Forest University has been missing a book for 22 years. Uh, that book was due on April 29th, 1995, and it's a very special book, and, and very few people know that this book is, is missing. The title of this book is The Mass Media Election, How Americans Choose Their President by Thomas E. Patterson. Now, I'm not sure who has this book in their possession, but <coughs> it might be me. Some of you are probably wondering, how did you get away with having a book for 22 years? Well, first, I didn't realize I had it uh, until uh, we moved uh, last, last September, and I was looking through my stuff in my book collection, and I'm like, oh, wow, I've got a library book. Secondly, do I want to return it? No, they have my information. They can contact me if they want it, and I really don't want to know what the fine is for this book after 22, 22 long years. Others of you are thinking, why do you have a political book in your possession anyway? When I went to Wake Forest University, I went there to be an accountant. That was what I was going to study. My sophomore year, I had to take my accounting courses, and I figured out real quickly that I wasn't going to be an accountant after taking those classes. And so I had to choose pretty quickly, what do I want to do? And so I love politics, so I said, I'm going to be a political science major. As you can imagine, going back to my home and talking to my parents and saying, hey, I'm not going to be an accountant anymore. I'm going to go into political science. You can imagine what that conversation was like. And in fact, my mom and dad are visiting from North Carolina today, and, and my dad's here right now. And I remember my dad telling me, well, what kind of job can you get with a political science degree? Well, Dad, I can be a minister just like you with that kind of studying going on. No, I remember so much about this, the courses that I, I took. Uh, I can remember reading Locke and Machiavelli. I can remember um, the most boring class I've ever taken called was talking about the Supreme Court rulings. It was it was it was pretty boring. But anyway, um, I can remember taking a class on uh, Vietnam. I can remember taking a class on Sweden's public policy. I can remember all of that. But here's what I want to tell you this morning. All of that political study that I did and all the political stories that we've had over the course of human history. Nothing is more powerful politically than the birth of Jesus. And today, as we continue this series called The Untold Stories of Christmas, we're going to look at this in a political way. As we began last week, we, we said, you know, when it comes to the story of Jesus, the Christmas story, we, we have this picture of this cute, cuddly little, little baby Jesus, and you just want to squeeze his little cheek, you just want to hold him. But really, there was more happening. Now, last week, we said there was a war that was taking place when, when Jesus was, was being born. And today, we're going to talk about this being a, a political story. And again, this political story is more powerful than any political story that you and I can ever imagine. Because honestly, when we look at the story of the birth of Jesus, it tells us so much about God's politics. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in Luke 2 and Luke 1 this morning. But if you have your Bible, you can turn there to be up here on the screens. You can follow along on your Journey Church app or your program. Here's what it says, Luke 2, verse 1. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Real quick, Luke tells us who the political power is at that time. It was the Roman Empire. Around 27 B.C., uh, Caesar Augustus became the first Roman emperor. And he actually was a pretty good emperor. He brought freedom and justice and, and peace to the Roman Empire. He was the beginning point for the 200 years of peace in Rome. Uh, the people loved him. They even called him their, their great savior. But Augustus was politically savvy. 
He understood that for him to rule, there were two groups of people he needed to take care of. One happened to be the military, and the other were the wealthy. And, and so in his mind, he figured out what he needed to do to protect his, his emperorship, if you will. He, he needed to rule by fear and passion. Fear, because at any given moment, he had access to 250,000 trained soldiers and mercenaries. That if anything ever happened anywhere and he needed help, he could grab those guys and send them out to take care of whatever business needed to be dealt with. But he also ruled by passion. Rome would go in and they would take over these nations. And when they did that, they would, they would tell them, here's how this is going to work. You're going to give us crops. You're going to give us produce. You're going to pay sales tax. You're going to pay transit taxes. And so all of this money would begin to flow into Rome. Well, if all this money is flowing into Rome, you can imagine where that money's going. First, this meant that he could pay the military good wages, which meant he was protecting himself. Take care of the military, they're going to take care of you. But then it also, also took care of the wealthy. As you know, Rome was one of these places where construction was happening all the time. And so this money was coming into to Rome, and these wealthy people were building all these structures, and so the economy was, was booming. They were padding their, their bank accounts. Again, this protected him in that role. Augustus knew exactly what he was doing. Here was the problem. With all the tax money running into Rome, it meant that about 97% of the people who lived in the empire itself lived in some sort of poverty outside of Rome. That's a lot of poverty. But guess what happens within this Roman empire? Look at verse 3. It says, And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem for the census. And the purpose of this census is to figure out how many people we have in the empire so we can figure out how much we ask them to, be, to pay back in, in taxes. And so Mary and Joseph find themselves caught in, in the midst of, of this rule of a guy named Augustus. And so here at the very beginning in the story of, of the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth, we have an idea of what's happening politically around us, that Rome is the ultimate political power. But there's more happening here. There's actually another layer to this political system. Israel itself has a political system in place. Around 63 B.C., the Romans came in and overtook Jerusalem. And when they did that, they made, they made Israel this, um, this client kingdom. Uh, that meant they had this semi-independent king, which meant the king could rule his area, but he also had to be very subordinate to Rome. Now, the person who took over this role was Herod the Great. Herod went to the Senate, the Roman Senate, in about 37 B.C. and said, hey, I, I want to be the, the king of Judea. And the Roman Senate said, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Here's what we're going to name you. We're going to call you the king of the Jews. Think about that connection with the crucifixion there. And so he becomes this, this Roman, or he becomes this, this king of, of Judea. And he was actually not, not too bad in some ways. He was known to be a builder. He loved Roman structures and what was happening there. And so he brought a lot of that to Jerusalem. He brought a lot of that to, to Israel. And so he just began building things. And so if you have a construction boom, it means you have jobs, which means incomes tend to go up, which means your economy tends to be pretty good. And so during this time period of Herod's, Herod's leadership, 
the economy was really good there in Judea, but people still hated him. They hated him because he was a Jew, and yet he worked very closely with Rome. For them, he was a traitor. Uh, Not only that, but he was unpredictable. Psychiatrists have looked at the history of of Herod's life and what they've found, what they've decided, is he was probably a paranoid schizophrenic. He was always afraid that someone was out to kill him. And so instead of waiting for that to happen, he figured he'd he'd make things happen himself. Uh, He killed his key advisors. He killed uh, some of his siblings. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed one of his wives. He killed three of his kids. Why? Because he was so afraid someone was always after him. Again, this is the environment that Jesus was born into. But that's not the only political system we have in place. It goes even a, a step further. Within the Jewish faith, you have this religious political system that is happening. The Jewish people believe that they have been put here on this earth for a specific reason. And so they intertwined faith and politics. They, they brought those two together, and they said, we are here because the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming through us. Now, again, they're thinking about this earthly king. They're thinking about somebody like Herod, somebody like Augustus coming into play. They're not thinking about this spiritual king. And so they're prepared for this. They're, they're waiting for this. And inside this religious political system that we find in Judaism itself, there's actually four different movements. There were the zealots. Uh, they were the freedom fighters, probably a better way that we would describe them today. They were terrorists. Um, they would go in and create violence, violently attack the Romans, trying to get them out of, of Israel. And there were the Essenes. They were the total opposite. They were monastic. Uh, they were very much stayed away from, from public life. They lived up in, in the mountains and the caves. Uh, They believed in ritualistic um, purification. That was sort of their big thing. Thankfully, they were great about hiding stuff, and they hid the the Dead Sea Scrolls that we found back in, I think, the 50s or 60s. And and from those, we got quite a bit of information about Scripture. Uh, Then the next group is you have the the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the wealthy priests and aristocrats. They worked closely with Rome, though, so people didn't care for them too much. They weren't really that religious. They were more political in nature. Um, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, but they, they weren't atheists. They weren't agnostic. Um, their group of people made up the 71-member team called the Sanhedrin, which were known to be sort of the supreme court, if you will, of Judaism. And then lastly, you have, you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of people that were really sort of the, the middle class, the, the people's party. They were modern-day lawyers. Now, they, of course, they were religiously driven. Uh, that's why they lived their life. And they felt like their job was to tell Jewish people when they were sinning and to get them on the right track. But not only that, to keep Gentile influence away from them. And so this is the culture politically that we find that Jesus is born into. These are the layers that are, are there. And again, though, we, we go back to the story of, of Jesus being born and we, we think about this cute, cuddly little baby with swaddling cloths lying in a manger, and we just want to pinch his little cheeks. This is what we think. But there's so much more happening. We, we think, wow, what a simpler time. Things were so easy back then. I, I, I think about the political climate at that time that Jesus was born into. I'm thinking, that's way worse than anything we've ever experienced. But this is what God jumps into the picture and says, let me tell you a little bit about my politics. And we find that throughout the birth of Jesus. In Luke 2, verse 6, it says, While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. 
She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Jesus is born under the rule of the Roman emperor, uh, under the rule of a psychopathic king of Judea, under the rule of this confused religiously, politically group uh, of Jews. He comes into this political climate. And if we take some time and we really look at the Christmas story itself, again, what we find is that you and I are introduced to God's politics. And God's politics are so different than the politics that you and I are so used to. They're so different than the world. In fact, think about Mary for a moment. I mean, who is she? I mean, we, we have elevated her to this cult-like status in, in some ways, in some uh, different um, groups of, of faith. But, but the truth is, she has some pretty humble beginnings. She was a teenager, probably around the age of 14 when she gave birth to Jesus. She's unmarried. She is pregnant. In that culture, she would have been laughed at, made fun of, ridiculed, called unfaithful. She would have been a social outcast. But do you know what her life was going to look like? Her life, if she lived it out the way that it should have in those days, she was going to be like thousands and thousands of other young girls in the Middle East. Her job, get married and then have kids. And hopefully she has boys. And then when she has those kids, she has those boys, her job then is to take care of the family home. And at that point in time, she's forgotten. And yet what does God do? God jumps into the midst of that and says, nope, you're exactly, you're exactly who I want to be the earthly mother of my child, Jesus. See, the world's politics was very male-centric at that time. And it was all about power and prestige and position and possessions. Does Mary have any of that? No. But God's politics aren't like the world's politics. God's politics are very different. And in fact, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 26, excuse me, 28, we read when God chooses Mary. It says the angel went to her and said, Greetings you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? God could have chosen so many other people for Jesus to be born into their family. He, he could have chosen a prince. He could have chosen royalty. He could have chosen any of those three layers of, of pol politics that we find at that time when he was born. He could have chosen any of those to put, put Jesus into those families, but he doesn't. He, he chooses chooses a young teenage girl, someone that has no power or prestige or position or possession. And God says, nope, this is perfectly, this is the perfect person for Jesus to be born to. Because again, God's politics, they're upside down. God's politics are not like the politics we find in the world. 
And in fact, I love the song that Mary sings, the prayer that she prays if we look down in verse 46, because I think she beautifully understands God's politics. It says, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. We we read her song there, and you know what I see? I see God's politics at play. And, And again, God's politics are so different than the politics that you and I have. God is God. And you know what? God's not impressed with the same things that you and I are impressed with. God's not impressed with the possessions and the position and the privilege and the power. God's not, God's not impressed with that. God is something very different. That God looks at that and says, I don't really care. Here's what I care about. Are you humble? Are, are you loving? Are you full of mercy? Are you faithful? Are you doing everything you can to follow me. God's politics is upside down from the world that we live in. And we get a glimpse of that with Mary and God choosing Mary. God chooses someone no one else would have chosen to be the mother of Jesus. But we see another glimpse of God's politics here in the birth announcement. Caesar Augustus in 6 BC says, hey, I want you to celebrate my birthday. And here's the, the announcement that goes out. It says, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. The birthday of the God, and again, this is Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of the good news concerning him. Here's Jesus' birth announcement in chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. In 6 B.C., when Augustus sends this out, he has it inscribed. And so it goes to all these different places, and it goes to the empire. And here's the deal. He's like, hey, it's my birthday, and I want you to celebrate. Well, let me take that back. You have to celebrate, right? This is not an option for you. He's 57 years old when he sends out his birth announcement, okay? Think about that for a moment. Jesus, on the other hand, is born, and God's like, I got a great marketing plan, guys. Here's how this is going to work. We're going to tell the shepherds. And I'm sure all his team was like, uh, that's a terrible marketing plan, but whatever you want to do, it's fine. See, the shepherds, they were social outcasts too. They were socially marginalized. The religious people looked down on them. They were smelly. They were transient. Um, they couldn't even be witnesses in a court of law. One of the things that they would, um, would do is when they would go to new pastures, they would end up in these new towns and villages, and anytime anything went missing, 
or was stolen, the first people they would blame were the shepherds, even if the shepherds weren't even close by. No, this is what the community thought of the shepherds. And God says, I got a great group of people that I need to tell about the birth of Jesus, shepherds. It's not what you and I would have done. We would have gone and we would have had inscriptions and we would have put it all over the place and we would have told the whole world, the whole empire, not God. God's politics are not like ours. God's politics are upside down. And we find that here with the birth announcement also. If we look at this Christmas story, what we will find is that this gives us an introduction into God's politics. And if this is what God's politics are all about, how does that affect us? What does that mean for you and I? What are the next steps that you and I have to take in our life? If we say, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus, what does this look like for me? Well, this morning I'm going to give us three things that I think that you and I can do or should do so that we can have God's politics kind of easing through who we are. Now, this first one might be a little con- con- controversial, but, but I believe it has to be said. Here's, here's the first next step I think we have to go uh, believe in. We've got to stop defining God by a political party. We have to stop defining God by a political party. Somebody's done some really good marketing, and what we have said is that God is very in tune with one political party, right? Let's just be honest. We've said, people have said, God is a Republican. God is not a Republican, okay? And God's not a Democrat. And God's not a part of the Green Party or the Libertarian Party or the Socialist Party. God's not even independent. God is God. And here's what you, I'm going to challenge you to do. If you don't believe that, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Go and read Scripture, okay? And then here's what I want you to do with that Scripture. I want you, in your mind, to get rid of every opinion you have, every feeling that you have, everything that's personally connected. Just let it all go. And focus on Scripture. Because here's what you're going to find. If we were to lay out all the political parties, we would find there would be some commonalities with what we find in Scripture with the Republican Party, or the Democratic Party, or the Green Party, or the Libertarian Party, or the Socialist Party. We'd find that. But you know what? We'd find a lot of deep disagreements, too. And yet we come to this place where we've begun to define God by a political party. God is not political in the way that we are political. God is God. God is different than that. Again, God is not a political party or a system. God is not defined by a political party, but the birth of Jesus is a political story because it's all about God's politics. They're so different than ours, but they're upside down in the world we live in. Which leads us to the second thing. If, if God's politics are different than ours, if, if God's politics are upside down, then we've got to stop looking at the world or people the way the world does. The story in the Old Testament, King, um, excuse me, Samuel, the prophet, is sent to go find a new king. And God sends him to Jesse's house, and Jesse has a plethora of boys. And so when he gets there, Samuel's like, hey, Jesse, can you start parading your boys out? And I'm going to, you know, God's going to tell me which one I need to pick, and then I'm going to pick that one as king. Well, the first one comes out, and Jesse's like, wow, look at that dude got a full head of hair he's big and muscular he speaks and, and talks very well we can have a great conversation this has got to be the guy god's like nope next samuel brings out the next one same thing well look at this kid man he's even better looking than the first one and blah 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 blah. And samuel's like this has got to be it guy's like nope keep going and this keeps happening and and finally i think samuel just has this point like god I, I see some really good guys here i think this i think you're missing this here's what god says to samuel 
It says the Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You and I, we like to look at the outward appearance. In fact, we, we make decisions on friendships based on the way others look or who they are. They've got a better job, better house, they make more money, their kids are better, they, they drive nicer cars. And so we look at them and we begin to compare ourselves and, and, and we think to ourselves, I want to be like them. And so we interact with them. We, we spend time with them. We want to become like them. How many of us walk around and it's like, hey, man, I really want to be like that fourth homie over there. I, you know, I, I know that, that guy's mentally unstable, but I'd really love to live a life just like him. We don't go around saying that at all, do we? No, because we don't, we don't want to be that. We're looking on the outside so many times, and we forget about the power of what's inside of us. God doesn't look at the outside. God's not looking at power and possessions and position and prestige. Not important to God. God's way beyond that. God says, what's inside? What's in the heart? What's in the soul? If you and I look at this Christmas story, would we want to spend any time with the people that God chose to use? I don't think so. Mary and Joseph are not the couple that we would say, I want to be just like them. They're young, they're teenagers, she's pregnant. They're not even married. Man, I just, I just want to be like them. I mean, as parents, we, it's not what you, you hope for your kids, right? You don't hope that for your kids. None of us would want to spend time with them. Never mind the shepherds. Nobody wanted to be around the shepherds. None of us are like, man, I just want to, I'm going to go hang out with the shepherds. I want to, I want to live a shepherd life because that just sounds amazing to me. We wouldn't have done that. Even the royalty at that time wanted to kill Jesus. See, we, we write different stories ourselves. We, we come up with our own ideas of what, what life should look like, what we want, because we're so focused on the outside. God says, no, it's about what's on the inside. That's why I chose Mary and Joseph. That's why I chose the shepherds. And so God, God's politics are upside down from us. When you look at other people, what do you see? Do you just see who they are on the outside? Or do you look to understand who they are, who God has created them to be on the inside? Again, God's politics are upside down. Which means if God's politics are upside down, then you and I need to live upside down lives. We, we try to define ourselves through our power and prestige and position our possessions. That's how we try to define our own lives. What would happen if we lived upside down? What if we were different than the world? What if we lived counterculturally to the way the world does? What would that look like for us? How do we do that? Well, first I would say it means we follow Jesus. That's our first step. Jesus was countercultural. Jesus was revolutionary. Jesus was not like the rest of culture. Jesus was living out God's politics every single day of his life. What would it be like for us to do that? What would it be like for us to follow Jesus in that way? It would change us. What if we were more like Jesus than we are like the world around us? What would God do with that? But if we decided that we wanted to be countercultural, if we wanted to live this upside-down life, and we said, I'm going to follow Jesus first. That means that we would also be different than the world. 
that we would think differently, that we would we would act differently than what we see happening in the world around us. Which means if we follow Jesus, we're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. That we're called to something bigger than ourselves. What would that look like for you to live that out? How would you be countercultural and different? Different in the world. How would you view the world around you if you really believe this? If I really believe this, how would I live differently? A few years back, we were living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, before we moved up here. And, um, you know, we would drive around town and go out to eat or go shopping or something. And we'd come up to these intersections. And, and like some of the areas here, when you would stop, there would be someone at the intersection with a sign, holding the sign up, asking for food or money or, you know, some sort of help. Our, our kids started asking us questions like, hey, what's going on with them? What's happening with them? You know, how can we help them? And, and you know, we think they're just having a hard time, and this is one of the ways that they kind of take care of themselves. And so the kids said, what, what can we do about that? How can we be different? How can we help them out? One of our friends worked with the homeless population there in the county we were in, and he worked with quite a few of these particular uh, people. And, um, and he said, hey, here's what I would tell you. He said, I, I suggest you not give them money. He said a lot of times they, they misuse that and ab- abuse it, as you can imagine. He said give them gift cards, a McDonald's card, a, you know, a coffee shop card, something like that, things that they can take care of themselves. And we thought, no, that sounds pretty good. But our kids wanted to do something even beyond that. And so they did a re- little research, and they came up with a plan. They, they began to take these, these gallon Ziploc bags, and they started putting things in it. They started putting toiletry items in it, toothbrush and toothpaste and, and wipes and deodorant. It was cold, so they put gloves in there. We put snacks and food and all kinds of different things in there and zipped them up. And we'd pack those in our van, and every time that we would go out, if we saw an individual looking for some help, we'd always roll the window down, and either one of the kids or Kara or myself would hand that to that individual. I don't remember one time one of them saying, no, I don't want that. You know, I look at my kids and I think, that's what it means to be different. That's what it looks like for us to be countercultural. Because here's what we do. Let's just be honest for a moment, okay? We drive up and we see the person like, oh, don't look. Don't look. Stop. Okay, I think I got a real important phone call. And you pick up your phone and you're checking your email and you're kind of looking out of the corner of your eye. And then you're talking to somebody who's not even in your car because you you don't want to make eye contact. Because if you make eye contact, you know they're coming to your car, Right? That's how we respond. We act like those individuals don't exist, but they do. And they're a part of our world. And even though you and I would look at them and say, I don't want to be like them. I don't, I don't want to live the same life that they live. You know what? We're not being followers of Christ if we're not doing things to help those in need. What does it look like for us to live this upside-down world where we're caring for people? Hey, what they do with the stuff we give or how we help, that's, not, that's between them and God. It's not about us. It's not about us feeling better about ourselves. It's about doing and living out God's politics in this earth. I can remember last December, I was talking to uh, Eric Rumpf um, about the work that they do. You know, he's with the Alexandria uh, Police Department. And I was asking him, I said, hey, you know, what, what are the big things you guys deal with right now? People robbing and stealing stuff out of homes. He's like, no, Chad. He said, over the past, past few years, uh, the increase has been in domestic violence and suicides. It's like we see more and more of that every single holiday season. I, I hear those words, and I still taunt me to this day a year later, and I think, do we take the time to have conversations with people anymore? How many people do we live near? How many of your neighbors and my neighbors are struggling right now? 
if they're in relationships they need help with or, or they just need somebody to talk to, and what do we do? We just drive on past, we wave at them and smile, and we just go like, you know, hey. We're great about talking. We're not very good about listening. And even this time of year when things are hustling and bustling and we're all over the place and we're busy, what does five minutes do? Five minutes could save somebody's life in many different ways. Do we take the time to do that? Listen, it means living life upside down, different from the world, living out God's call to us. Even when it comes to something like nonprofits, being connected to nonprofits in the past 15, 20 years in ministry, what they will tell you is that this time of year, they got way too many people who volunteer. So many people. They have to turn them away. Guess what happens in January? They're like, did the rapture happen? Because we can't find anybody to come help us. But it's true. What would it look like for us to jump in in January and February and March and, and be a part of that? God's politics are different than the world's politics. They're upside down, which means you and I, we live or should live an upside down life. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. We are here to make a difference in the world, to live out the teachings of Jesus. And, and honestly, when we look at God's politics, we're called to something bigger and better than the world we live in. Are we living an upside down life? political systems have been here since the beginning of time and they're going to be here way after we're gone and you know what there's nothing in the bible that says you can't be a part of political parties or political systems go for it be a part of that do what you got to do totally fine but my question is if we follow christ are we doing what we're supposed to be doing in terms of living out god's politics it's okay that we have opinions and thoughts. It's okay that we follow a particular political party. But my bigger question is, are we living out God's politics? Are we living out an upside-down life in this world? Are we following Christ? And are we making a difference in the lives of others? And you want to know what God's politics are all about? It's about being different. And it's about living that out every single day. Because God's politics are upside-down. And we should live an upside-down life and make a difference in the world around us. That's the story of Christmas. That's the political story that we find in the Christmas story, the story of the birth of Jesus. We're going into a time of communion this morning. And as we do that, I want to go back and look at this uh, one little passage from Mary's song. In Luke 148, she says, For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. God used someone that you and I would have probably looked down upon. We would have passed over. We would have been looking for, for someone else to be the mother of Jesus. But, but she says, No, God took notice of me, of my lowly place, my, my humble spirit and maybe sometimes that's the place we need to be we need to humble ourselves we need to be faithful and full of mercy and love and at that place we can live out God's politics and we can be different in the world as we take communion this morning I hope it's a reminder to you that we are different that as we follow Jesus this is a moment for us that we are reminded of, of first God's love for us through Christ but yet at the same time that we are called to be different, 
the world we live in. I hope you'll think about that this morning. Maybe come up with an idea or plan what that looks like for you. Maybe today you need prayer. Today we'll have our prayer team up here during our communion time, the rest of our service, where you just need to come up and pray with them. Ask them to say, hey, would you pray that God would lead me to be in a risk taker, to, to do something different in the world. And see where God leads you in that.